So welcome to season two of Rigged. Uh, we've decided to do a second season. Um, Ilias and Chris are here. Um, and we've been talking uh, about what this season should entail. Uh, there's been news since our last season ended about this uh, case from two I mean, the case was happened in 2012 and 2013 is when the chemists were arrested. And here we are eight years after the last chemist arrest. And there's still ongoing evidence and controversy around the case. Um, and it just, it, it seems to never end. The uh, OIG has really dug in their heels and said that, and, you know, has, they've been, uh, well, why don't you guys go through it? Chris, why don't you uh, take us through what's been going on if you, if you don't have a, if, if you're okay with that? Yeah. I, so the inspector general's office uh, released a report in 2014, uh, their initial one on the Hinton lab. It was very thorough. And I have to give a lot of the people who worked in that office praise because much of the work that I've done since then um, I've used the information they uncovered as the foundation. However, it left out a number of critical details that were truly important, especially to the uh, Farrakh Hinton defendants. Um, as a result of prolonged litigation um, with, uh, you know, working in conjunction with the ACLU, uh, MACTL, the Massachusetts Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, and other. Uh, members of the bar, uh, we were able to get access to the inspector general's files. And as a result of them becoming public, uh, a number of thing ha things happened. First, um, uh, Middlesex DA Marion Ryan uh, sent a series of letters, uh, one to the governor and the head of EOPS, uh, essentially asking the inspector general's office to explain itself. Um, and then in response, uh, the inspector general, uh, Glenn Kuna sent sort of a nasty <laughs> juvenile ish, uh, response. And this kept going back and forth, uh, as media attention grew. So some of the things that, uh, we discovered, uh, were talked about in the last season, and they've also been the subject of media attention in the Boston Globe. The Herald, uh, I think CNN may have picked up uh, a couple of these issues. Um, but long story short, they had a consultant who told them there were a number of things very, very wrong about Farrick's work, and they didn't release it. So fast forward to... About, uh, hold on, about Farrick's work when she was at Hinton, right? Not just when she... Right. Yeah. Not, not when she was at Amherst, but when she worked for Hinton for almost two years and um, and they found a lot of very suspicious stuff back in 2013, right? Right. A month after about it. So um, now uh, their initial report, the supplemental report that they subsequently issued uh, regarding retesting of various samples uh, has been called into question. And as a result of that, in, on April 6, 2021, they published a very short summary of their methodology uh, for their investigation, which is sort of a nothing burger. Um, in grand total, they say they um, retested 25 of Sonia Farrick's samples. That equates to approximately 0.273% of the number of evidence samples that she handled while she was at the Hinton lab. 
And um, they, they sort of want that to be the end of the story as if that was a good enough job investigating uh, her misconduct. Right. And she was testing at some months while she was there, she was testing at absurdly high levels, correct? She was right. testing at, at levels higher than what Dukin was testing at. Right. Number of that, i.e. testing, i.e. number of samples processed per month. And it's important to remember when we talk about number of samples processed per month, the most senior people, we, we brushed on this last season, but the most senior people at these labs said that you could only uh, do 150 samples per month. That's the average that they thought people could do. There, there was a range. So the, the lab supervisor, um, Chuck Salemi, said it was somewhere between 150 and 300 odd samples. Another chemist, uh, Lisa Glazer, said that Look, if she had no other responsibilities, meaning you know nothing to do uh, with QC or QA in the lab, she could churn out maybe tops four hundred a month. But you know we're talking about um, Farrah reporting thirteen hundred analyses a month. Right. That's you know triple what uh, one chemist said that the max that they could do. Yeah. And, and the, it, and the OIG, in their response, we'll get in in another episode. We'll get into what their exact response was, but uh, their response essentially said that they looked at all the chemist testing numbers and found no problems with it. Correct? Yeah, I, I mean, their response was essentially that uh, we looked at every instance that we could find where a sample was run through the GCMS machines more than once, which I've said previously. That's not a bad idea. So when they learned about um, Dukin's fraud and what her modus operandi, they thought it was a good idea, and it was, to check and see if there were any other chemists who might have been engaged in the same activity where she wasn't doing the initial testing. She'd send it off the machines, and when the secondary chemist would have caught her, she just uh, planted evidence in the sample, right? So they were looking at... Um, samples that were run multiple times to see if there's anything fishy going on. But the problem I have with that is that they subsequently learned that there is a different chemist who was engaged in an entirely different type of fraud, and they didn't think it would have been wise to uh, more closely scrutinize her work in particular. Right. And they also didn't go back into the 1990s, where, as we know, Sandra Lip. Lipschitz was um, testing samples at Dukin levels back in the 90s on a consistent basis. And Peter Pirro and other chemists as well were testing it uh, over the, two, the 150 number per month, certainly. And so there's a lot of suspicious activity and there's no real, uh, they never really say why they went only from 2002 to 2012 because they, they claim that they didn't just investigate Dukin. And she wasn't the focus, yet they only investigated the lab from basically the entire, well, for Dukin's entire tenure, tenure plus one year, right? Right. So um, this isn't going to be the only thing that we're going to be um, talking about this year. We're going to try to get into some other things outside of the lab. The first few episodes are going to be about the inspector general's report because the inspector general keeps fighting. Mr. Mr. Kuna is uh, clearly desperate to keep his job. That's, that's my take, my opinion, 
but he, I think he sees he's in trouble, probably next on the firing line, and he's desperate to justify the expense and what his department did uh, in investigating this lab, even though there's holes in, in what he has released um, out to the public. Now, Ilias, um, what else? So we, we've talked about other things that we want to cover, and there's more interesting things that are happening in Massachusetts currently right now that don't have anything to do with the hidden lab, but also have to do with the criminal justice system. Do you want to discuss some of the, the things that we want to bring up this, this season? Well, sure. I mean, I think it, it, it is getting a slightly far afield, although uh, I, I, I can't not think that it's relevant given things we're going to talk about um, uh, a little bit in, in, in this season. And we talked about a lot last season. Uh, there was this idea that the state police are some uh, firewall uh, uh, against malfeasance and that therefore uh, nothing could follow uh, um, uh, 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 in terms of uh, um, uh, mischief into the, 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 ha the halls of Sudbury where the state police have their lab. And then we find out that, well, there's a few officers who are cheating on overtime. And then we find out that it's like a lot of officers cheating on overtime. And so it sort of seems like Maybe we need to reconsider uh, the assumptions about what the state police were up to during this time. Um, and, uh, and also, it's a good reminder that, that one trick that people do when they want to limit something in an investigation is that they personalize it. And what that means is they look at the people and say, well, it's just this person, right? Um, you've probably heard the phrase bad apples. Well, the, the, the expression is actually bad apples spoil the bunch. And one of the things that you find out and looking at Hinton and now the overtime scandal is that these were like practices. These were systemic. Nobody like woke up one morning and said, I'm just going to invent overtime fraud. They probably talked to each other. Here's what you do. And they even had uh, certain um, uh, uh, prearranged uh, ideas, like ironically, uh, disposing of evidence was one of the things you could claim you were doing. Uh, so we'll talk about that and, and how it's relevant. We'll talk about evidence from misconduct because I think that's also relevant. Um, and we touched on it before, but uh, you start to uh, wonder why we're talking about individual people when there seem to be these vast uh, uh, um, governmental uh, 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 practices uh, with very little oversight and very little discipline. So we'll get into that. And I think also the old adage, follow the money. Um, maybe we should ask why the government is so invested in the war on drugs. Does it have anything to do with money? Um, does it have anything to do with people getting more money? Um, and, and it's not the people that you might think. Absolutely. And it's, yes, because when we think money and we think drugs, we think drug dealers. But there's also, you know... Um, there's also a corrupting element that Ilias always talks about. And he, you know, we've talked briefly about a side project that we want to do um, called Druggies, which is about the corrupting factor that the, or the corrupting influence that the drug war itself has on the criminal justice system. And that's more of what we're going to look at this season. We're going to look at how the drug war has corrupted the Massachusetts criminal justice system to its core. Um, not just that the Hinton, the Hinton lab and the Amherst lab were side effects of this corruption. And we, we've seen, we, we, the only reason that we can cover this is because 
the state has released a ton of information on those labs and what and what happened. But what we're seeing as well is we're seeing evidence officers get arrested in Framingham, in, in Springfield, in Braintree, and in Boston now. There's evidence officers being arrested one by one for stealing evidence, for stealing um, cash, for, you know, just taking, 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 because that's what the drug war is all about. And then we will we'll also going to go into asset forfeiture, which is another huge driver of what the drug war is all about. Uh, it's about taking money and the legal theft, what I call the legal theft from people because they, the police justify it as a, you know, they want to disincentivize, uh, you know, dealing drugs. And it makes sense from, from, a, from a certain standpoint. You don't want drug dealers being able to profit from this. You want to take their profits and then, re, I mean, ideally, you'd think they would reinvest it in the community and help bring the community up, milk maybe build community centers or whatever, but that money does not go to the community. It goes into the pockets of the police and the DAs, goes directly to them. So it they are cash incentivized to continue this drug war, to make us believe that the drug war is not only working, but is necessary because they have money behind it. People don't understand that, that these police and, and law enforcement officials have a financial stake in keeping and perpetuating the drug. And, and uh, I guess it's worth just reminding people that um, not surprisingly, the drug war has a disproportionate impact on communities. of uh, And so if you think of the typical uh, uh, forfeiture, uh, it might involve uh, pulling somebody over late at night, smell of marijuana, and then they find rolled up cash and you're like, well, gee, who are, you know, around midnight might have rolled up cash? Well, how about a bar back or, or, a, or a waiter um, you know, at a restaurant uh, after they divide up the tips? That person might have cash. I mean, I'm lucky if I ever have cash these days. Um, but there are people who actually are paid in cash and they depend on it. And there's no, there's no need to link the cash to the drugs. That's what's, we'll get into that, but that's what's crazy. You just say, oh, I found cash. It must be part of some elaborate scheme. So we'll just go ahead and take it. Um, and so uh, uh, I think that needs to be reconsidered. And I think people first need to know this because they don't know it. And it's the part they leave out of law and order where they just take the guy's money. Right. And, and how much of that is actually reported? You know, I mean, they're taking the stuff out of the evidence office that they're actually bringing back to the station. But I mean, what's stopping a police officer from just taking that money and putting it in his pocket and saying, you know, I, I stopped this guy and never reporting it. You, know, you don't know. There's too much of a temptation. These are human beings. They're not, you know, robots like uh, the attorney general once told the Supreme Court about uh, the drug people testing the drug evidence that there is a robotic procedure. These are not robots just doing an arrest. These are human beings that are seeing easy money that no one would ever know about that they could just put in their pocket. And it's, and it's corrupting. It really is. But know, one of, one of the ahead. things, we didn't discuss this beforehand, but it strikes me now, um, you know, maybe we should talk about it. Some of the Supreme Court decisions that incentivize police lying surely have contributed to this uh, culture. Right. So uh, I, I remember when I was first <laughs> first jury trial, uh, my boss said, why don't you argue 
that the police officer is lying. And I was like, what? Police officers don't lie. Slowly <laughs> <laughs> right? but surely I realized they do that every day. And part of that is because, um, you know, suppression isn't mandatory if uh, police officers lie during the course of an investigation or an interview. And uh, that incentivizes this behavior. So they learn to do it over and over and over again. And it creates this culture where they feel like they don't have to be truthful to anyone. Right. Right. I, 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 I seem to remember, I think it was Rehnquist. Like I, I will have to dig into that, but that's, um, you know, this idea that, that that's not somehow anything an investigation. And by the way, that's a peculiar, peculiarly American idea. Um, mm-hmm. The way we interrogate uh, 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 suspects, uh, the way we lie to them, um, we use a combination of lying and fake befriending to get them to admit things against their interest. Um, when there's a whole nother approach where you just ask somebody questions and listen to their answers and actually write them down. Um, and then you kind of uh, review the evidence and then huddle uh, with you know what everyone's working mm-hmm. with. Um, but we don't do that here. Uh, instead, we we use uh, deceit, and that's okay. And I and I think uh, Chris, that's a great point. That how often, how many times do you get to lie at work before you sort of lose sight of what's the truth and what's a lie? Right. I would say that that's a that's a problem. Um, yeah, surely that's contributed to this culture where they're committing overtime fraud. Not just the Mass State Police, but the Boston Police Department, people in evidence uh, offices all throughout the state, and I'm sure throughout the country. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm sure they justify it to themselves, guys, because they're going against the bad guys. Right. And in order to do it, in order to get the upper hand, you have to do whatever it takes. They know these guys are guilty. So they they need to go to jail. And if you need to fudge it a little bit, you're doing it in the best interest of the public. That's the justification. But at what point do you become the very thing that you are trying to protect the public against? You know, at what point, like, are you wrong and you're sending an innocent person to jail, even though you know they're guilty, but say they're not, say you're wrong. Like, you know, like they're supposed to let the evidence do the talking. They're supposed to be honest and present just the facts as, you know, they famously said in uh, Dragnet, right? Um, But it's not just, it's not just the facts. It's, it's something beyond that. And that's what we want to get to with this podcast and with this season, especially. And it's not necessarily every cop. I've met plenty of them. But it's this culture that the sort of the state of the law has created that, um, you know, has brought forth this problem. Right. And the honest ones, honestly, they probably don't feel comfortable. I mean, it's if they are, you know, in with someone that they have to see every day, it has to be tough on them to uh, come out and say, you know, this guy's, this guy's full of shit. He needs to be disciplined, blah, 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 because it, it opens up a whole hornet's nest and then it's his word against theirs. And it's, it's tough. It, it puts everyone in a bad situation. And that's the other thing. That's it. Thank you for bringing that up, Chris, because it's, we know that this is not all police officers. There's plenty of police officers and law enforcement officials out there who are honest, who are as pissed off about what has happened at the Hinton lab and what goes on as we are, but they are not, they are not enabled enough or they don't do enough to stop this stuff and to come out, come forward and tell the truth. And they need to be empowered to do that. That's the other part. 
But um, this season is going to be great. Uh, we're looking forward to getting rolling. Did, did you have something else, Silius? I'm sorry. No. Oh, okay. I heard. I heard a noise. Uh, it, so that, that might be the alarms going off in my house because we have a power outage. But okay. <laughs> All right. So yeah, this season's going to be great. We're going to do a bunch of uh, diverse episodes on not just the Hitman Lab, but on other aspects of the criminal justice system in Massachusetts as well. So definitely, as always, like and subscribe our podcast wherever you get them, and uh, can't wait to get started. Hope you guys enjoy it. Thank you for listening to The Rig Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe so that you can get the latest episodes right when they come out.